Consumers have been hammered by the pandemic and inflation, and this is impacting what grocery shoppers are actually buying and where they are buying their groceries from. RBC Capital Markets Managing Director Nick Modi returns to discuss these trends and more on this episode of the Food Institute Podcast, coming at you right now. Right, before we get started, I do want to thank the sponsor of today's episode, and that is City National Bank. City National Bank provides banking, investment, and trust services through 69 branches, including 21 full-service regional centers in Southern California, the San Francisco Bay Area, Nevada, New York City, Nashville, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., and Miami. If you'd like to learn more, I really urge you to take a look at the description of this episode, and you can find a link directly to their website, or you can just type in www.cnb.com slash foodandbev. Now, with that out of the way, we welcome Nick Modi back to the Food Institute podcast. And Nick, I was wondering if you could reintroduce yourself for some audience members who may not be familiar with you already. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so my name is Nick Modi. I cover the beverages, packaged food, household per- personal care, and beauty industries for RBC Capital Markets. Uh, the companies that I cover make up about $1.5 trillion in total market cap. And my passion is really to help my investor clients make money in consumer stocks and to help the C-suites of the consumer companies think about how they can create more value. So you are the man to talk to today because we're going to be talking about the modern retail food consumer in the U.S. and a lot of the challenges they've had to face. And I think the best place to start is maybe just taking a top-level look at what you're seeing when it comes to consumers, what they're spending, et cetera. So can you give us maybe a brief outline overview of what you're seeing when it comes to the modern food consumer right now in the U.S.? Absolutely. Look, it's tough, but this is not a surprise. We have been flagging a weakening consumer backdrop since late last year as we started to see some really some early warning signs, if you will, you know, pack size trade down or early signals of actual trade down to private label in certain categories. And if you really think about it, there are a few things that are happening all at once. First, we have some macro pressures. Second, I think the consumer is going through post-COVID normalization of some of their behaviors. If you go back during the pandemic, we were eating it certain ways, we were drinking certain ways, uh, perhaps the frequency and the amount were higher than what we normally consume. And I think consumers are starting to get back to kind of their behaviors prior to COVID um, in some way, shape, and form. And that's putting a little bit of pressure on consumption rates. And the last thing, Chris, that I think is really important to understand is I think all the pricing that has been taken, and there's been a lot of it, um, I think has really created some new consideration sets for consumers. And so categories and, and, and segments of the grocery store that may not have interacted with one another too much, um, they are starting to interact a lot more now uh, because prices have gone up so much for certain categories. Yeah, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but it does seem that there was kind of a, you know, a tipping point that was reached with some of this price increases. And I think maybe it's a cumulative effect for consumers as well. So I'm wondering, are you seeing the same thing? You're saying basically there was that tipping point where they were resilient, willing to absorb some prices, but it's kind of getting to a point now where, you know, maybe we are past that tipping point on a lot of different types of products. Yeah, I, I think so. And we call those, you know, critical price thresholds, right? These magical price points. Um, I think... Companies were doing what they needed to do. They had to offset all that cost inflation. And so they took pricing so they can reinvest back into their businesses. Um, but I don't think anyone really had any models to anticipate, you know, what would happen 6, 12, 18 months after all this pricing went into the market. It's hard to create those models when you don't have a good history, right? And so I think we're, we are at that tipping point. 
Um, and it's really a risk stack if, is, is if what you want to call it, right? You have all these things happening, elimination of SNAP emergency allotment, uh, the student loan repayments, um, delinquency rates going up, you know, all this stuff is happening. And in isolation, none of them would really affect the way consumers are behaving. But when you start adding them all together and layering them on top of one another, it starts to create a problem. So I think that's kind of where we are right now. The other thing I would say just on the on the pricing, these categories are not elastic, right? I think what we learned is that they call them consumer staples for a reason. People need them. I think the real issue was the cross elasticity is when one brand promotes and another doesn't and kind of forces that brand to promote. And then you get into this promotional cycle. And since everyone was going up at the same time and not really promoting, it created that very solid kind of um, elasticity narrative that we've been hearing about for the past 12 months. But now that fill rates are back to normal, retailers are looking for traffic and volume. I think it's starting to put some promotional pressure on on the different players. And, and that's really what where the elasticity is now coming from. Yeah, and there's a lot we could talk about there, but I do want to keep it focused a little bit on the consumer before we jump into that. And one of the things you brought up on a planning call that I thought was really interesting was the dynamic between personal credit and savings rates right now. And I was hoping you could expand on that for our audience to kind of give, you know, a, an overall view of like, I don't want to say how drastic it's getting for the consumer, but I kind of do, right? Because it does seem to be really pushing consumers down right now. So can you talk that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, the gap between personal savings and credit are at its widest gap since we have the data. Um, it looks like consumers are funding their lifestyles with credit. This would be in line with a recent Food Institute news update that I saw this week, where one in three households are buying groceries on credit, and you're seeing a, now, a lot of buy now, pay later as well. And delinquency rates are also picking up across uh, every single loan class, whether it's home, auto, um, you know, personal, and obviously now student loan repayments are going to start as well. So. I think we all kind of got accustomed to a certain type of lifestyle during the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, my revenge spend theory. And that is, you know, consumers are trying to sustain that lifestyle. Um, and I think they're now starting to realize that they can't. And that's why we're starting to see default rates on credit pick back up. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to that with the experiential aspect, at least on the food service side of the business, people wanting to be able to go out and be able to eat there. Um, but when you take a look at like customer accounts across a lot of restaurants, you've been seeing them decline for the last couple of years at this point, and they're really being able to make their margins on those price increases. So I thought that's definitely an interesting thing we wanted to bring up. And you also mentioned this earlier, but I do think it's worth bringing back up again, too, is just talking about how the snap cuts earlier this year, the end of those pandemic era um, benefit programs are really impacting consumers too. And obviously that's now also going to impact grocers. So I'm wondering, what can you tell us about this? I think that, you know, with the latest spending bill, there wasn't too much of a change, but I think, you know, there's always this specter as well that there could be future cuts too. So I'm just wondering, how do you view, you know, that whole dynamic as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great point. And it's something that's still impacting consumption rates today. Even though the emergency allotments came off in March, you know, we're, we're still seeing a, a, an impact. Now, if you think about it, during the pandemic, as, as many of these low-income consumers were getting this kind of extra benefit, they were participating in price tiers that they normally did not traffic in, more premium, super premium brands. That is coming out of the system, right? And then on top of that, they're feeling pressure from inflation. I have three rules of thumb as it relates to consumer and consumer health. Low-income consumers tend to be disproportionately impacted by gas prices and food inflation. Middle-income consumers tend to be impacted by the housing market, and high-income consumers tend to be impacted 
um, by the stock market. And so if you really think about that low in income consumer contingency and cohort, they, they really have been under a lot of pressure. And then you take away some of these extra benefits. And that's why you can see a big uh, step function change in their consumption rates. We did note this back in April. And since then, we have definitely seen um, consumption rates fall off for categories that would be more exposed to those low income consumers. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about what those consumers are actually purchasing then. You know, we just talked about a bunch of the pressures that modern food retail consumer is really facing. So let's talk about what they're buying. And I'm wondering if you, like everybody else in the food industry, seems to see the same thing. But are you seeing a major shift to private label as well? Because that seems to be one of the biggest trends that started before the pandemic, had a little bit of a lapse during the pandemic, but really seems to be coming on strong again here in 2023. Yeah, absolutely. We are observing it. But, you know, what's interesting is, Trade down has been has been happening since early last year. It's just we we define trade down and you know in in very you know stringent terms like private label or going from a value brand, a premium brand to a value brand. But if you really think about it, consumers were trading down within restaurants, right? They were going from the twelve ounce steak to the ten ounce steak because of cost. They were going from two cocktails to one, right? Um, then they kind of went from the higher end restaurants and they started trading down to the lower end restaurants. Then when they wanted to trade down further because of ongoing macro pressure, they traded into the home. Then they went from, you know, perhaps Nordstrom's Target to Walmart Dollar General, right? They traded down to pack size. Now we're finally seeing trade down within the pantry from a brand perspective, right? So call it the sixth, seventh order of trade down. But this has been going on um, as kind of a rolling thunder, if you will, since early last year. And I still think there's going to be a little bit more pain to come. So yes, we are seeing trade down uh, right now uh, within packaged food from brands to private label, and it's pretty ubiquitous. And I think part of the conversation there needs to focus on the fact that, you know, we're using the word trade down, um, but it's not the same kind of trade down that you would see even 10 years ago. The rise of these, you know, private label brands, I did a podcast with Hunter Thurman from Alpha Diver, so I got to give him credit for this term he was using, but it was own brands, not just private label, right? So it's not just, you know, slapping the name of the supermarket on a product that's being third party, you know, produced. Now you have a full brand and I take a look, you know, Target's got Good and Gather, I think is a good example. Um, so I think this is part of it as well. I think consumers are even more willing at this point because the quality has kind of gone up in comparison to, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Is that something you guys are seeing too? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's an interesting situation, right? Because we've been seeing pretty pronounced trade up over the last decade, right? And so I think some of the retailers are starting to recognize, hey, consumers want a, a, a super premium kind of proposition um, at an affordable price point. And so some of them are actually scaling up their private brands or retailer brands or store brands or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I, I think the, the retailers are also getting a lot more sophisticated, but let's not kid ourselves. Okay. If you go and look at all the consumer work, consumers that are trading down a private label don't really want to trade down. They're doing it out of necessity. Right? So the question, there's going to be this outstanding question is this really going to be permanent and structural or when things start to improve and inflation cools off, will we start seeing those consumers migrate back to the brands? We have seen that historically, right? That has been the, the trend. So we'll see what happens this time around. I think it's all going to come down to product efficacy. Does it taste better, smell better, make you feel better, et cetera. Um, and if, if the retailers can invest enough to create brand propositions and product propositions that actually have a superior um, taste, feel, look, you know, what have you, 
um, they're going to be able to hang on to those consumers with private brands. But let's think about historically, it tends, tends to revert back to the mean. And, and so the brands should, if things hold, uh, get, get that share back when things start to recover. And I guess we'll see, you know, 12 months from now, we can have another conversation, kind of see where it goes. Um, one of the things I did notice too, you know, I mean, this is not just me noticing it, but during the pandemic, right, everyone was loading up on shelf-stable products. Everyone was looking for those CPG items. That way they could limit their grocery trips, et cetera. I'm just wondering, you know, now that we're in 2023, what kind of dynamics are you seeing changing there? Um, are people still going for those shelf-stable products in the CPG space, or are they going for different types of products? Yeah, this is... Chris, I think this is a really fascinating discussion, right? Because if you go back and you think about how we as consumers were behaving prior to the pandemic, the, the big discussion was fresh. You know, the perimeter of the store versus the center of the store and the perimeter was winning at that time. Consumers were just eating more stuff around the perimeter, whether that was for health and wellness reasons or whatever. And then we got to COVID and it became a hygiene issue, right? I mean, think about how all of us were using disinfecting wipes to wipe down our boxes of cereal and soup. And we really didn't feel as comfortable doing it with uh, raw spinach or broccoli or oranges, right? And so there was a lot of center store products that really gained household penetration um, and it stuck for a while. Well, if you think about what's happening now and you go back to one of the comments I made earlier about post-COVID consumer normalization, behavioral normalization, Perhaps those consumers now are saying, hey, I want to get back to the way I was eating pre-pandemic. I want to start making more food at home. But then an additional kind of catalyst to that is the relative disinflation um, or deflation that we're seeing in the perimeter versus the center, right? Because if you think about it, the perimeter is comprised of primarily commoditized products. There's not a lot of branding going on um, when it comes to fresh food or vegetables or yogurt or what have you, Right. And so I think what's happening is the prices in the perimeter are coming down much faster than what you're seeing in the center of the store. And I think consumers are migrating to that, to that value. You know, consumers know how to find value. They may not be able to articulate it in real time, but we're definitely seeing them behave this way. Yeah, and I think it's worth spending a little bit more time on this just because to your point, you know, we are seeing some of those commodities um, those prices going down faster than the CPG, um, you know, a lot of CPG companies use these as ingredients, but, you know, it's not the only cost pressure they're facing. They are facing increased supply chain costs, increased labor costs, et cetera, right? So I'm just wondering, you know, if you're a CPG brand, at least in my viewpoint, you're getting pinched on one end by the move towards private label. And then on the other end, you know, you have all of these commoditized products that are going down in price quicker than you can even think about lowering your prices. So I don't really envy anybody right now in the CPG space because it does seem like they're caught between a rock and a hard place. But I'm wondering, you know, with that all in mind, what do you think CPG can be doing in the current day to kind of contend with these issues? Is there anything that they should be focusing on right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when I think about this very question, because obviously I think about this particular question quite a bit, um, there's three things, right? Number one is they have to manage price caps. It's just the reality of the situation. You took a lot of this pricing. Some you might have crossed some critical price thresholds as we discussed earlier, and it might you might need to invest back into your brands to make sure that your pricing is where it needs to be, right? So I think managing price gaps is is going to be very important, and that's something that I'm expecting uh, when I think about 2024. The second thing is innovate. We're not talking about line extensions, real innovation that can provide a, a superior consumer experience because in the end, the way brands are built today is through recommendation, right? Because of social media. 
And so you need to have a product. The product must speak for itself so others recommend it. Again, it must taste better, smell better, make you feel better. Um, and the third thing, which, you know, not, not to get too, you know, sci-fi on you, but AI, right? Today, there isn't a capability with AI to personalize marketing messages to consumers, individual consumers. I'm not talking about emails. Hey, Chris. Hey, Nick. I'm talking about actual personalized messaging. Okay. Um, but those capabilities still have not been built to the level of sophistication that is required to do that. But the, but the opportunity exists. And so I think these are three things that all CBG companies should be thinking very hard about uh, right now. And as we go into 2024. Yeah. And just the advance, you know, nature of uh, generative AI in general has really been really staggering to me. Just the fact that you're seeing it move so quickly. You know, I feel like it was just yesterday we were talking about like the launch of ChatGPT and MidJourney. And now you're seeing, you know, certain companies are already starting to utilize this, um, you know, in a lot of their marketing messages, but also even like recipe development. We just saw Coca-Cola came out with, I believe it was called Y3000, um, you know, putting together obviously with a human as well, not just the AI running on its own, but, you know, being able to put together a different type of product, you know, do you see a future where a lot of this is happening or do you think it's going to be more, you know, tied into human capital kind of coming together and putting these together? How do you see that playing out? I, I think it has to be a combination of both, right? I think, you have to use the AI as a tool. I mean, I, you know, I can even tell you from my own job um, how much more, how AI has made me much more productive, more efficient. Um, and, but it won't replace me. At least I hope it won't. <laughs> um, and you and me both. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So the, re the reality is, look, I, I think AI is, is, is going to be a very, very important tool that should be used in conjunction with the scientists in the R&D lab and, the marketers and, and and what have you. So I, you know, to me, it's 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 going to be more of a synergy than than a substitute. All right. So now we've already talked about the consumer. We've talked about what they're buying. I think now we can talk a little bit about where they are going to buy these products. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier with the like three tranches of consumers that you brought up. And I'm just wondering, you know, from a top level, um, you know, viewpoint, where are consumers going? Are you seeing a lot of shifts when it comes to where they're purchasing their groceries? Are consumers going to like multiple stores? What are you guys seeing at the RPC, RBC side right now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very clear. Um, like I talked about centered to perimeter, consumers know where to find value. And so they're going to find value, right? They're going to discount channels, whether it be Dollar or Lidl or Aldi, right? But here's the interesting thing. Value is defined differently by different income cohorts. For instance, low-income consumers, the way they would think about value is low dollar outlay, right? Overall cash outlay. So dollar store, right? Where can I find things at a lower price point? Higher-income consumers, the way they define value is by price per ounce or unit. Right. So they can go and they have the cash to go and and spend X dollars to buy a case of whatever at Costco or BJ's or Sam's Club. Low income consumers, consumers may not have that kind of capital to buy large pack sizes. Right. So we have to really think about value in those terms because that's how the consumer is thinking about value. And so I always kind of ask when I do these industry presentations and I speak to company boards and management teams, I say, how local are you actually being in your marketplace? Do you understand, you know, the income levels in your particular, in, in a particular re region or geography and which retailers are there? And are you kind of 
making sure you have the right strategies and communication messaging to make sure. So if you're in a high income territory, making sure that you're really partnering with the, the club channel to, to make sure people know that there's value there for them. And so I, th I think that is going to be the, a key theme, this value seeking, but we have to really think about it in a, in a bifurcated way, right? Low income consumers going to value channels because of price point, high income consumers going to a uh, uh, club to get price per, per, per ounce or price per unit. So yeah, let's dive in with one of those groups. Let's start with the lower income consumer. You know, one of the things that really surprised me, you know, over the last couple of years is just how much dollar stores have been investing into their own food, you know, programs. Um, turns out that it was probably the right call though in the post-pandemic period, considering, you know, the inflationary pressures that we're seeing. So I'm just wondering what kind of influx are you seeing? Is it a massive influx? You know, are they still going to those ultra discounters as well? Like how does that playing out right now for the lower income consumer? Yeah, absolutely. They're, they are going, they're going to dollar, they're going to Aldi, they're going to Lidl. Um, so we're, we're seeing that we're seeing significant growth coming in those channels for the packaged food space. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, right? Because not all channels are tracked equally. Right. And so if you're a company and you rely on, you know, the, the scanner data companies to understand what's going on with trends, which obviously those uh, companies have amazing coverage, right. And in, in, in certain channels, but some of these other channels, they're blind spots. And so, you know, when, when the companies start thinking about, you know, what's going on, you know, are they taking a holistic view? Do they really know what's happening and, and where their consumers are migrating and how much more they're or less they're spending, you know, so it creates a little bit of an analytical problem. I mean, I, I struggle with the same issue, right? Because obviously some of these uh, channels are not tracked uh, with data that we use on an everyday basis to help, you know, inform us on what's happening in the marketplace. So it's another thing to consider is just it's, it's, it's lowering visibility in an environment that already has lack of visibility, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I think part of it is just making some logical conclusions based on those gaps and kind of seeing, you know, all right, so we're seeing that there's less foot traffic in these traditional channels. So we got to figure out where they're going. And I think one of the things we talked about earlier, um, you know, with that shift to private label, I think really kind of fuels, I think, a lot of the movement towards those ultra discounters, if you want to call them that, the Aldi's, the Lytle's, even, I guess, grocery outlet out on the West Coast too, right? Um, but it seems like people are going more and more to these companies, and they also have pretty robust private label programs as well. So I'm wondering, are you seeing a correlation like that too? Yeah, and and it's the, the, the lack of kind of full picture, I think, is obfuscating how much momentum private label actually has right now. Because I think in some of these non-tracked areas, private label share gains have been much more significant than they are in the data that we tend to look at um, on, a, on an everyday basis. So, you know, that is definitely something that I think the companies need to really start thinking about. You know, at the end of every conversation we have, Nick, I always wish we had more time because it just goes too fast. But I did want to ask before we sign off here, uh, if anybody wants to learn more about RBC, where should they go? Yeah, they can just go to rbccm.com um, for information on RBC in general. And then, you know, if you'd like to reach out to me, um, I'm at nik.modi at rbc.com. And feel free to reach out uh, if you'd like to talk about the industry or if you'd like to get my research. Sounds good. And we'll definitely share the relevant links in the description of this episode. Once again, Nick, thanks for some time today and for sharing your insights with the Food Institute podcast. Thanks, Chris. 
And that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute Podcast. I do want to thank Nick Modi again for spending some time with us today exploring the modern grocery retail consumer. And I do want to thank City National Bank once again for sponsoring this episode. That's going to do it for us this time. And until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. 